when a male attending took over during the pediatric trauma because he didn't think a mom could do it, that's bias. When my PD assumed I didn't want to be chief because I had kids at home, that's bias. When a patient said, you're not the kind of doctor I was expecting, that's bias. When I was asked during a med school interview how I plan on having a career, husband, and kids, that's bias. All right, welcome back to the EM Stud podcast. We're deep into interview season, and we thought it was important to bring on a few amazing wonder women to you today. I've got Drs. Dara Cass and Charlotte Wills here today on the EM Stud podcast. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great. Well, why don't you each tell us a little bit more about yourselves, your title, your location, what you're into. So let's hear from each of you. Charlotte, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, thank you, and thank you for having me today. Uh, I am the currently the program director at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. Uh, for a long time, I was the clerkship director and um, have been program director for about the past year and a half. Great. And Dara, you've been on the show before, but why don't you remind our listeners? Yeah, so I am Dara Cass. I work at NYU Medical Center in New York City. I have been an assistant program director. I have been a clerkship director in that order, which is different than most. And I am the founding editor-in-chief of Feminem.org, uh, which I hope is familiar to a lot of listeners as an open access resource for women in emergency medicine. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. So let's, let's try to really frame the big issue that we brought you guys on the show for today. So Charlotte, why don't you tell us kind of what's a 10,000-foot view that warrants this discussion, this movement, this podcast that we're about to discuss? So the issue, the issue here is, is that um, you go into a residency interview and there are sometimes competing interests. And what most people don't realize is that a residency interview is a, is a job interview. Um, so no, not only are there the rules put out by the NRMP that, that govern what interviewers can and cannot ask, but um, this job interview enjoys protections um, from the government. There's actual labor law uh, that governs what are appropriate questions to be answering. And they mostly center around privacy and protecting um, classes of individuals, so women and members of minority groups, um, et cetera. And it's very easy to cross those lines sometimes and um, very commonplace, really, for applicants in an interview situation to be faced with questions that make them uncomfortable uh, and oftentimes are... Uh, inappropriate or illegal as dictated by the NRMP, but actually are technically illegal by um, federal labor laws. Gotcha. So that really helps us understand what we're kind of up against. And I was not aware of the, I think, volume of literature that's been out there, but Charlotte, you've been very active in authoring and contributing to some papers that really speak to some of these topics. So let's, let's talk about one of them. And we'll also have some of the links in our show notes to these these articles. Why don't you go through one of these papers and define some real key specifics and examples you see 
as areas that we can improve in each of our centers in these areas? Yeah, well, I, I would love to take full credit for this, but I, I can't. Um, I have to give full credit to um, one of my colleagues, um, Jean Hearn, who was um, my predecessor as program director. And this has really been um, a passion of his for well over a decade, uh, inspired by the experiences of many of his um, female uh, classmates in medical school who were uh, frequently, frequently asked about their marital status and their plans to have children. And so, um, so uh, we actually asked this question of all applicants who entered the match uh, initially in the 2006-2007 application cycle. So a questionnaire went out through ERAS after people had submitted their match lists uh, across specialties to really look at how frequent was it that people were faced with these questions during during the interview, and uh, and the results were pretty disheartening, uh, with you know almost um, sixty five percent, I believe, in the initial interview of uh, of people receiving at least one illegal question uh, during their interview trail, and we repeated this this survey some some years later uh, about I think it was the two thousand twelve cycle. This time the questionnaire went out to twenty thousand plus applicants in the in the uh, match, and about half of them replied. So this is a survey of eleven thousand uh, applicants again across specialties. And we realized that the needle hadn't moved all that much, that really the prevalence of these illegal questions that spanned everything from not only marital status and plans to, to have a family or children, but also to uh, religion and sexual preference, uh, all of these questions were being asked, again, across specialties. And I think we, we in emergency medicine thought we would somehow do much better with this, um, but that actually wasn't the case. Uh, in, in the first paper, there are actual quotes from um, a, lot of the, a lot of the applicants, and some of them are heartbreaking because uh, whereas I, th I think we would all like to think this is accidental and we're not doing this intentionally, a lot of the questions in some instances were prefaced with, I know this is an illegal question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. Mm. Uh, and that really speaks to the power differential that uh, is inherent in the, in the interview process. The, these are highly sought after residency positions that these applicants all want to be considered for and have some choice in. And so that, that just, that really puts the applicant in, in an impossible situation in terms of their answer there. Um, and so these were, these were happening. There were other questions about, you know, well, when will you have children? What will you do if you have children? Uh, down to um, a number of questions around extremes of age. Uh, you look too young to be applying for residency, or how is someone as old as you going to manage with the stresses of residency? So they really did span the gamut. Uh, and again, you know, everybody loses in this situation because the applicants are left with a, a negative impression of that program and also uh, left at a, a feeling that, that they're at a significant disadvantage. Um, and the programs are potentially losing out on, uh, you know, just terrific future residents. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, um, it's a significant and it's a prevalent problem. Uh, and how we go about dealing with it is, is challenging, I think, on both ends, both from the applicants and then with the programs themselves. We're hearing that there's some really obvious conscious awareness of appropriate, inappropriate, illegal, legal questions, and that people are even using some nefarious techniques to even address these. And those are the obvious things I think most people would probably catch on to. What are some other questions that we need to be keeping a lookout for in the interview trail and advice for our EM studs? 
Yeah, I think these questions um, they can be they can be more subtle, and this is this is um, you know this is this is where uh, assumptions and implicit biases come in. Um, a good example would be uh, you know an applicant is talking about um, their kids, and you know so I frequently um, I am the mother of three boys, and so uh, and it's on the website. Everybody, if you look on our website, you'll find that out. And so people ask me about. I did school. not ask you that. You question. did not ask me that, and that's okay. But I brought it up, so now you can ask me about it. Um, <laughs> so you know what? What about the schools, or how do you manage this, that, and the other? And um, and then you know then there's the reciprocal. What about your kids? And then well, what does your husband do? Uh, and when a female applicant, I've then gone and made the jump and the assumption that you know you are in a straight relationship and you're married and you have a spouse. When if that person is not married or maybe they're partnered or they are partnered with uh, another woman, I've I've automatically made that person uncomfortable. And I've also made a bunch of assumptions, and I've now kind of entered into to an area where where that that line of questioning can quickly get into the weeds. And whereas you can splice the hairs in terms of, well, is it legal, is it not legal, in terms of how you entered into that line of questioning, uh, the, the bottom line is that person is meant, meant to feel awkward and maybe they, they end up discussing or answering questions about something they, they didn't want to be discussing. And Dara, I want to bring you into the conversation. What are some more subtle questions that you're aware of or concepts that have come up in your experience that you want our listeners to be more aware of? Um, well, I think that if you go back to like the biased conversations about how people are going to manage their work and their life and a lot of the other things that, you know, there's good literature out there, not just in residency interviews about things like likability bias and maternal bias and all this other stuff. And so the minute that they, anybody starts asking you questions and a lot of times it'll be in a genuinely positive interest, right? So people will be asking you a question, not intending on pigeonholing you in a biased way. So specifically, you know, where did you go to college? Or tell me what you do in your free time. And a lot of those things will end up with, well, I, my husband and I go hiking. Oh, really? You're married. What does your husband do? And so again, these things are, um, it's a slippery slope. And again, it, it, it's different for everybody. And a lot of the conversations around these biased questions and these questions that are actually illegal are that the person on the receiving end isn't always uncomfortable by the first question, but by the second or third, that's when, and they feel like they kind of gave permission to continue that line of questioning because they answered the first or the second because they wanted to. And so um, I think that childcare is a hard one, right? How do you plan on taking care of your kids? Who's mm -hmm. gonna watch your kids while you're a resident? <laughs> Um, matching with a, uh, in a couple's match with somebody else that you're in a relationship with can get into a lot of messy conversations about the nature of the relationship. How serious are you? Are you going to get married to that person? You know, the, like I said, the interview for residency is, an, is a high stress, high yield interview for both parties. And so I think that a lot of people come into the meeting with the, I got to find out everything I can about this person in this moment. And that's when a lot of these kind of questions that wouldn't happen in the real world come out. Gotcha. So let's let's pose this in a real life situation. Let's do a little clinical vignette here. Let's say I'm a student and I'm going to an interview and I am asked, I think, a blatantly illegal question. There's no yellow lights here. This is like red lights. You know it. The person maybe even, I think as Charlotte mentioned, I know this is an illegal question, but I am interested in blah, blah, blah. What should we do in a situation like that? Should we just yell wrong like Trump 
and interrupt? <laughs> Should we respond back with an equally insulting question like Clinton does? I mean, are there other approaches? What do you recommend for our interviewees? Well, I think taking, taking the lead from the recent presidential debates, um, I would pivot. I would pivot. I mean, it's... it's um... <laughs> I love it. I love so it. So I was going to say the exact same thing. In fact, my boss said to me yesterday, you're an excellent pivoter. I'm like, I know you're the best. So I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think it's tough because, um, you know, when you, when you talk to people that have been in these situations or... Uh, having been in this situation myself, there's a, there's a couple of options. You can, you can lie, and I think none of us want to be put in the position of actually lying. You can, um, you can you know, throw the flag, but you're sort of, in doing that, saying, hey, that's an illegal question. Um, it's, it's destructive to that relationship, and, and it's just it's hard to come back from that, and I think it closes a lot of doors, especially if... Um, you know, if the way in which you got into that line of questioning um, wasn't as nefarious. Um, and, and then you can actually, you can literally pivot a little bit and, and, and be, be honest and true to yourself. I think it's going to be uh, a little bit up to the individual and the dynamic and the situation, but say, you know, it's, 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 it's a good question. I would deal with that as I do all, you know, large life events and challenges. And I would hope I would rise to the occasion and I would draw on the support of those around me and support from the program. And, you know, you can even turn it a little bit back on, on the program themselves. Saying, how have you dealt with these situations with uh, prior residents when these situations have come up? Because they will have come up before. I mean, life happens in residency. Um, you know, all of the other life events that, 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 go, that go on, whether they're um, uh, deaths and births and medical crises and family crises or whatnot, they're not put on hold for three or four years while you're in residency. And, and so I'm just a big believer in life happens and it's up to the, the resident to um, be resilient and flexible with those situations and for the program to be equally as supportive and flexible. So, you know, I think you can turn it around a little bit um, to, onto the program and ask them how they deal with it. And you can probably get a lot of good information about how they are going to either be supportive or not supportive. And, you know, finding out that there's not that support there um, might be really important for you in terms of you making the decision as an applicant uh, in terms of that, again, that goodness of fit. Is this, a good, is this program going to be a good fit for you, not only in your training, but in the rest of your life? Charlotte, I love that point that you just made about pivoting and then maybe turning the question. Whenever anyone's asked me a very personal, challenging question, maybe in front of a large audience, and that's happened before, one technique that I've not been able to execute, but I've seen others do well, is again, turning the question back a little bit and saying, you know, that's a really good and maybe personal question to a lot of people. How would that influence me as a resident in your program? I want to clarify so I can answer that question well. I think that remembering um, anytime you're dancing around a question that's a little bit sensitive, for lack of a better term, when you when you get posed a question that's potentially illegal. So for example, let's say it's a, what does your partner do when you're gay? Right? And you, or what does your wife do when you're a guy and you're not really sure if you want to come out or however that's going to be. Um, not immediately feeling defensive in that moment when you ask that second question. Remember that you're, like Charlotte said at the beginning, there's a power dynamic here and that you come into any interview as a, as a, res, as a medical student looking for residency in a vulnerable position. And as soon as one of those kind of 
softball questions or side or curveball questions, I guess, comes to you, you immediately, especially if you've been trying to not really sure how you'd address it at all in life, come, when you come into that moment, you may trigger a defense mechanism you weren't prepared for. Protecting that defense mechanism when you ask that second question is actually really important because mm. unfortunately when you're around those sensitive questions and specifically for women I can say you know things like parenthood or spousal you know income or job placement and you know all that stuff you're going to trigger other additional biases that the person may not have even realized that they were opening up if you respond and then you're more aggressive about that question so I would practice in your interview like as you get ready to, to do interviews, that reaction that you're going to have when posed with that question, not to answer it, but more like your sense of needing to either defend yourself or being angry at it because it won't suit you well to get angry or defensive. Um, I think that answering, asking an additional question is a great idea as long as you can do it with an even tone and cadence and don't somehow come off as as it triggering some kind of emotional volatility in you. Because again, the person was wrong for asking you to start, but they're never the one penalized by the interview going badly. You know, it's always, again, the power dynamic is off and it's the, the applicant who gets penalized if the interview dynamic falls off the radar. Um, even if you're a stellar candidate, they have 140 applicants for their 12 spots and you may or may not really want to be in that program. And so just understanding, like practicing that like you would anything else is probably a really good idea. That's great. I'm hearing some situational awareness training. I'm hearing some stress inoculation training. And I love that you're talking about practice. I drill into my students that you need to do the selfie. You need to do the practice interviews with the people that you trust and also watch yourself. And I think that's dovetailing. And I'd also say that I think the programs are penalized. I think they're penalized in the fact that they've just ostracized themselves from getting a great student, perhaps. So if there's program directors out there, APDs, clerkship directors, people that are interviewing, you're going to get penalized if you throw these kind of curveballs at people in the wrong way. Well, I think that's, you're going to bean someone. That's a that's a really important point, and I think this was, um, you know, why we we really wanted to make a point with this this article and and raise the awareness because uh, there are some of these questions that are are being deliberately asked. I, I think there's there's an even larger number where. Uh, it is inadvertent, and people don't realize uh, how uncomfortable they are making applicants feel, or how they are stepping over over these lines that are um, actually fairly well demarcated. Um, and so, there's a huge educational component uh, on the on the program side in terms of educating themselves. And actually, when when programs sign up for the NRMP. Uh, the program director signs this agreement. You are electronically signing an agreement, and you're taking responsibility for all of your interviewers. So, I, for my program, if one of my one of my senior residents or one of my faculty interviewers asks an illegal question, technically, I'm on the hook for that because, as an applicant, you do have the recourse of going back to the NRMP. I don't think that is often pursued, but students should realize if they come across something that is very egregious, there are actual channels through the NRMP. Um, to report these, and so they should feel somewhat empowered. Again, going getting back to what to what Dara is saying, it doesn't help you in the moment, and it doesn't help you secure that job that you very much want. Um, but you do have you do have an, an actual uh, protocolized um, recourse recourse there. Um, so you the, do have the atomic option. You huh? do have the atomic option, and and the NRMP will chase these down. Um, they really will chase these down and investigate. Um, 
but I think Dara's point is is good in terms of um, you know realizing what your own reaction to these these questions that is being. And if there are program directors and clerkship directors listening, absolutely, um, you know know what know what is is out of bounds, and really don't go there. Most of these questions you just you just don't need to know. It, it might be conversational. Um, you might be curious. But again, it doesn't really get at what makes a goodness of fit for that applicant um, for your program. There's so many other things that you can be talking um, about. And one way to act for programs to actually stay, you know, stay on track there, um, and I think it does help to, to guide the conversation, is having a standard list of questions for interviewers to go down. So this, the so-called standardized interview. Um, you know, allowing for easy conversation there, but actually having standardized lists of questions. That is one technique that is suggested so that you steer clear of these other areas uh, where you can get into trouble. So we've got the atomic weapon. We've also got the more, I think, ambassadorial approach, which you're both advocating for. And I guess worst case scenario, you could always answer any question with world peace. <laughs> that always works, huh? Certainly. Okay. All right, so let's see. Are there other papers out there that we can discuss? Any other reports that have been published that we can identify? How does emergency medicine stack up against other specialties? I've seen some data on that. Any other topics that we can wring out of this? Um, well, you know, as I was mentioning before, emergency medicine does a little better. The, the specialties that, that really run into to problems are, um, to, just to generalize, not to single any one specialty out here, they're more the surgical specialties. And um, while this isn't sort of proven in the literature, I think there's a number of us that just um, attribute this to, to, the, um, to the stringency of their schedules. Uh, and you know, disruption to a surgical call schedule uh, is, in, in um, practicality, it's, it is much, it's a much harder thing to overcome and rearrange than a disruption in an ED schedule where our shifts are more interchangeable, where staffing is is more movable, and we can cover for one each other uh, for one another um, with a greater degree of ease. So we definitely do see um, we do see that, that the preponderance of, of the illegal questions happen more in in surgery. Um, that being said, the prevalence in emergency medicine from the survey that was in the 2012 uh, match cycle. Um, so in terms of marital status, across all specialties, 53% of respondents reported getting some sort of query about their marital status, and emergency medicine was 44%. So we like to think we're much, much better about that, um, but it's not true. Uh, in terms of children, uh, not that far off. So all specialties, 24%, uh, emergency medicine, 20%. Um, family planning, so will you have children while you're in residency? 14% in all specialties versus 10%. Uh, and then even um, sexual orientation. So 1% of respondents, keeping in mind this is almost 11,000 applicants, this is a lot of people, uh, getting asked some sort of question about their sexual orientation, which is it's hard to even imagine how you would work that into a, a residency interview, but, but there you have it. Um, and then other questions around ethnicity, race, uh, gender, age, 9% across all specialties, 6% in emergency medicine. So I think uh, even though we like, I, I think um, I'm very proud of the fact that we are a very progressive specialty. We we have a long way to go in terms of, um, you know, in terms of, of really eradicating this element of the interview process. And um, one of the things that I would suggest, and I've been asked this now more recently by program leadership, in addition to chairs and other people of leadership and power, 
is to say, you know, how do I recruit more women to my program if I can't ask them questions? There's like, they feel like there's a double-edged sword, right? I want to be supportive to childbearing and parenthood and partnership and all this other stuff, but I can't ask these questions in an interview and it's really a first chance for me to, you know, meet them and give them my information. So they want to open these questions so that they can tell you how great their maternity policy is or that they want to be supportive when you're going to have a kid and they can make the schedule flexible. And the, what, what I say to them, and I think Charlotte can to attest to the legality of this, is actually to put it in the, in the handout that they get um, when they come for the interview, is to actually have a discreet piece of paper or on their website or some other kind of very transparent piece of information that has all those policies and protocols in place. Uh, so that people don't feel burdened to ask them during that interview or that it doesn't even come up as a natural conversation topic for the interviewer because you're not using that interaction to convey that information. Instead, it's in a neutral place and everybody, everybody's getting it, right? You're giving all 140 applicants your you know, benefits program as per the hospital and it has your backup child care program. So there's literally no reason to ask an applicant what their backup child care plans are. And I think that if the more neutral you make these topics, the less you burden the individual for asking them and the individual interviewer for bringing them up, the more likely we're going to get to overall success and um, kind of gender equity or any equity when it comes to these very difficult topics. And Dara, I think that dovetails with the next thing I wanted to bring up here in that while things today aren't perfect, I think a lot of work has been done by others. I mean, we mentioned Jean Hearn. We mentioned the work that Charlotte's done, the work you're doing at Feminine. We are headed in the right direction. Have we moved forward? What can we celebrate? Give us some real success stories of who is doing this well and who is doing this right. So I think that, you know, knowing who's doing it well is hard. I think that to, we were not in the interviews themselves and Charlotte has more data, but I think the data comes years behind the actual interviews. I do think that in emergency medicine, we're, and, and this is where our progressive nature comes in, having podcasts like this, having, you know, articles that are published by our specialty against all of the House of Medicine on these topics proves that we're thinking about it. You know, bias itself is first dressed by admitting that it exists. Right. So we know that unconscious bias exists, especially within the educator community of emergency medicine. We have embraced the concept that diversity and inclusion are important and that we have biases. And I think that if any of the students ever makes its accord, they'll see the actual really incredible diversity of our education leadership across the board. And that um, as a specialty and on the whole, we acknowledge that we get ourselves into difficult situations regarding diversity, inclusion, and bias, and we want to be better. And wanting to be better is probably the first step in actually getting better. Uh, I think that if you pivoted this conversation to an orthopedist <laughs> or a surgeon, uh, you know, I have I supervise a fair number of orthopedic residents at our uh, orthopedic hospital, and I am baffled not just at our interviews, but the interviews they have across the board in orthopedics at what is specifically asked of residents, regardless of gender, regarding the amount of dedication they'll have to their residency and the lack of outside interests that they're allowed to have while they're residents. And I think that that's something that we don't, we, we are not like that in emergency medicine. And so I think that for that, we're headed in the right direction. Dara, I need to know, how much do you bench press? Me? <laughs> Nothing. That's a question I cannot answer, but I'd like to know, Scott, how often do you go to the gym? I can bench my weight and I'm a really skinny little punk. 
It's the orthopedics interview. Okay. It is. Um, on a more serious note, Charlotte, what can we celebrate? What have you seen out there that you really want our listeners to be aware of so that we can learn from the people who are doing this well? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm about to go to my 20th med school reunion um, next May. So, uh, yeah, feeling a little bit like father time. Um, but if I just look back on what my experience was, I was in the 96-97 match cycle uh, when there was no ERAS and you wrote to programs um, for an application and sent it back in snail mail. And it was routine that I was asked. I got engaged during that match season and had a ring and got asked at pretty much anywhere that noticed my ring. Asked about my marital status and my plans to have kids and, and whatnot and did a fair amount of pivoting during then. Uh, and one memorable thing that I think sums it up is at the end of that, um, at a program that I, I did not match at, they called me, they contacted me and said, hey, we want to know about your experience at our program because our entire incoming class is male. And so that was, um, it was interesting and I still remember that. And now I actually, I look to my, um, to my intern class that is uh, nine women and three men. And I think, wow, what a long way we've come. And then as, as Dara mentioned, looking around CORD and really looking around um, emergency medicine now, there are female chairs. There are uh, many female program directors. Um, there, there are women in positions of, of leadership, and that, I think, has changed a great deal over the time that, that I've been in emergency medicine, and I think speaks to the fact that we are, we are, moving, uh, we are moving things to, to, into a, a, a direction that is much more inclusive, uh, and that inclusion and diversity are really large priorities uh, in our specialty, and I think at an individual program level, too. We really... Um, programs are, are really making great efforts to, to expand the diversity of their resident complement to make emergency medicine uh, a diverse and inclusive workforce in general to better serve the patient. So I, I think we definitely are moving in the right direction here. Um, it's, it, and it is going to take a little bit of time to show up in the data. Uh, I think though that's very 30,000 foot. Um, it's very big. It's very lofty. I think the individual student going into the match um, facing these questions in a 20-minute interview, it is more daunting and it is easy to lose sight of that. Uh, but overall, I, I do, it feels very different to me now than it did when, when I was a med student facing this process. What can our listeners do in medical school to advocate for these kind of issues? I think far, part of it is advocating for change when you develop positions of power. So um, it would be great if you find yourself in the interview cycle that you're being asked questions you don't think are appropriate. Once you get to be a chief, you make sure that those questions are asked and that you answer um, questions appropriately and that you lead by example. The uh, turnaround of residents to chiefs to attendings is actually much quicker than anyone you know, remembers going forward. Looking back, it seems to come much faster. And so I think that one of the things that I... I kind of champion through feminine and a lot of the con like the conversations we have around gender equity is it's not an individual problem and there are no individual solutions. So it's about par becoming part of a systemic change and being uh, part of leadership uh, from the top down. So I don't expect women themselves, specifically female medical students, to help solve this problem, but I do expect them once they come to a position of leadership to be part of the future solutions because together and eventually we'll all kind of make an impact that will be palpable. I would totally uh, agree with that. I think, um, you know, we talked a little bit uh, about this earlier. 
Um, but I think it, it, this is this is not an issue that is is uh, the women versus the men. It's not. Uh, we're all in this together. Every shift you work, um, we're all in this together, regardless if you're a man or a woman. And so I think this is not just a women's issue. It is all of our issue. Uh, because all, if all the women drop out of the workforce right now, I mean, you're talking about med school matriculations where many schools, it's well over 50% women. Uh, you know, at some point in the future, we literally will be half of the EM workforce. And so it, it behooves everybody um, to be supportive of one another. And, you know, really, like I said before, life happens. And so I, I think if we can um, normalize these, these events in women's lives, so expanding your family, adding to your family, um, to, to really, it's, it's not that big of a deal. We can overcome it. We have the resources to do that. We can support it and we can support one another. I, I think it becomes a much less contentious issue. And, you know, I even, I just turned to my colleague who actually is the lead author on all of these papers. He's a guy. This is important to him. It was important to support his colleagues and important to advocate for this component, um, of our, our, our residency membership and our workforce. And, um, yeah, I think this is, this is, uh, it's an issue for, for all of us. And so even if you are a guy out there, um, you know, you want this too because your female colleagues will be covering shifts for you when you have family emergencies or need to go to that soccer game or be there for your family member or for that interest. Um, we all cover each other. So I think, um, you know, being supportive, uh, it, it, makes, it, it makes the entire workforce um, more robust and, and better. All right. Any other closing thoughts that you have here? Uh, one thing I would like to interject here, and that's um, in terms of the interview itself, if you're a lot of this in information um, and a lot of the intangibles, uh, it's not actually going to come from the people who are interviewing you. So the faculty uh, or the program director or the clerkship director, those formal interviews, um, really make sure that you get face time with the residents because um, dollars to donuts, you're going to find some resident uh, in that program who has similar interests, demands. Um, concerns that you do coming into it. And I think actually talking to someone who has, um, you know, gone through the process and is there um, can speak much more explicitly and truthfully and honestly about their experience and whether you will get out of that program the support that, that you need. So, uh, you know, many programs will actually have um, lists of uh, uh, residents with kids. Uh, residents who identify as some specific underrepresented um, group. So we have we have a list of out residents that we will link up um, applicants to. We have a we have a list of residents who have had babies in residency. Um, uh, residents who have um, partners. Residents with families and small children. So that then the applicants can actually go and pick and find um, find residents who are in in similar circumstances. And then you can actually have a lot of very unfettered conversations and not have to be worried about this and not have to be worried that you're going to be judged because you are asking that question. Um, you know, we always tell applicants that we, the last thing we want to do is sell them a bill of goods that just isn't true. We don't want to sell them on our program when they, and then they arrive here and they realize like, Hey, this is not, this is not what I thought it was. This is not what I signed up for. So we really do try to be very transparent in that regard. Uh, and I think that's something for, for applicants to, to look for. Dara, any closing thoughts from you? No, I actually, I totally agree with what Charlotte said. I think that when I advise medical students on the process of residency application, I very much ask them to be true to who they are. And one of the things that they can't do is deny who they are and deny where they fit in. 
And so the interview is not the place to necessarily figure that out, but the process is. And so if you have a piece of you that is true to your identity, like I am married with three kids, I am an open book, everyone knows that about me, um, to look for a place that was not accommodating to me having a husband with a difficult schedule and three children, if that's who I was when I was applying, would be to set myself up for failure. Um, and the same thing is true of my personality and being a dynamic, outgoing person and being in a more strict, stringent environment that may not necessarily be receptive, receptive to that or any other parts of me that I, um, that, I, that I need, to be honest, and happy. Because that's where wellness and resilience come in and denying a piece of you because you want to fit in somewhere is not in your best interest, um, regardless of the name of the residency, the location of the residency, or any other kind of immobile thing that you think is valuable. So, but that's not really about interview questions as it is interview, like, you know, residency search process. Um, but that's an overall theme that I think that as you go through this and you start whittling down programs that are good for you and that you match at, or that you interview at and people give you interviews to look to the program and see, can I fit in there? Will it feel like my family? Is there a good fit? And if you continue to say yes, that's fantastic. Well, you've heard a lot of wisdom today shared by our great physicians. So, ladies, if we want to get a hold of you, any websites, Twitter handles, or websites that we need to be linked here in the show notes? How can we well, reach you, Dara? you have to go to feminine.org uh, if you want to find out any more information on this stuff. Uh, and you can email me through there or just tweet us. And what are your Twitter handles? So, mine is at Dara Cass. We also have an at Feminem Tweets if you find that anything is pertinent to the Twitter viewers there. Uh, and Charlotte, what about you? You know, I'm embarrassed to say I don't have a Twitter handle. I think I did, and, and then I forgot about it or something. Um, I have a good old-fashioned email, though, um, that uh, is charlottepagewills at gmail.com. I will also say that we have been doing a That's Bias campaign on Twitter. And so if for some reason you hear of things that you think might be biased and you would love to share them with the community, you can de-identify them. I heard that. Uh, it would be fine. Uh, or get your friends to tweet it out instead of you. But one of the things that helps here is an open communication about the kinds of topics that are being brought up. So you can just hashtag That's Bias or hashtag Women MDs, Women DOs, Women PhDs. Anything you want on top of it, uh, because we are actually trending it to see what's out there as far as bias goes. Okay. Well, we thank you so much for coming on to the EM Stud podcast. On behalf of my colleague, Dr. Nate, who I'm sure is interviewing students <laughs> and asking implicitly illegal questions. Watching you, Nate. This is your EMED coach, Dr. Scott Weeder, signing off for another edition of the EM Stud podcast. For more information about our organization, please go to www.cdemcurriculum.com. That's clerkship directors in emergency Until then, interview well, my friends. Mm-hmm.